Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. That was beautiful. You should join a choir sometime. That was really, really lovely. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Emily, very much. Well, today, for our summer sermon series, we're starting a new one, and we're just going to call it Songs of the Soul. And it's, it's going to be a journey into the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, the ancient hymn book of Israel. And as we explore several of these psalms, uh, I'm going to be coming in and out, and Pastor Josh is going to be coming in and out, and there might be another person or two, and Jessica Robinson might even be part of this a little bit too. And so you're coming in and out to church during the summer, so we're going to come in and out also. I'm just letting you know that, okay? And I just thought it would be good for us to spend some time exploring the different songs of Israel. And the, and the goal of all this, at least the goal that I have, that I'm aiming at, is as we see God better, as we get a glimpse of him, especially not just doctrinally, but, but in an emotional way, in a, in, in a way of, of people expressing their true feelings as they deal with life, as we see God more clearly, we'll get a better idea of who we really are. Because our theme this year is, who am I? You know, what's my identity in Christ? And we can see our identity in the book of Psalms as well. And so we're going to be exploring a lot of different psalms. And the things that, that I'm particularly excited about is that a lot of these are psalms that I've never studied and preached on before. So I'm a little excited about doing some fresh research and, and work. That's, that's a fun thing to me. I know I'm a nerd, but that's okay. And uh, I'm a good nerd. And uh, I like being a nerd. And so, and you can tell I'm very self-conscious about that. But... Uh, uh, that's okay. That's okay. Um, so I, I just want to encourage you that uh, when you're able to be here, please be here and be excited about studying the book of Psalms together and uh, hear the songs of the soul as we learn who God is and who we are because of who he is as well. So this morning, I'd like us to turn to a psalm that's kind of famous. Uh, it's, it's one that maybe you're very familiar with. I remember hearing this as a young teenager when I was a brand new Christian. It was a, a psalm that was important for people telling me about that I had value and worth and, you know, my identity and, you know, good self-image and all that kind of stuff. Because it's a, it's a precious psalm that just talks about God's watchful care over our lives. And so would you take your Bible, please, and let's turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. If you'd like to use one of the Bibles from the chair in front of you, it's on, it starts on page 521. 521. We're just going to call this message, Search Me, God. Okay. So listen to this psalm. And I think you might be surprised by one of the things that happens at the end of it. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do, not, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. Would you read verse 23 and 24, please? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. We give thanks to God. I got to tell you, everything's going fine until you hit verse 19. And I'm going, huh? You hate him? You want to have God kill him? What? I got to tell you this. When I was a, a freshman in Bible college, the teacher who was explaining how to interpret the Bible, that's called hermeneutics, the science of interpreting scripture, and as we were studying methods of biblical interpretation, he said, often the part of the passage that's the most difficult for you to understand, where you have your greatest number of questions that are hard to figure out, that's probably the key to unlocking the passage and opening up and, and explaining the meaning of what's going on there. So just file that away for a moment and we'll get to that passage and it might just help you and I as we're exploring through this psalm as well. So in this passage, it's written by King David and he's challenging us to think about God and our relationship with him. And the thing that's amazing about this passage, this song, this song of the soul, is that David, as he writes it, he's saying there are three very important things that you and I need to know about God as God relates to you and God relates to me. One is the very fact that God knows you. You see that in verses one through six. It's very clear that God knows you intimately. You think you know about God? Well, God knows you even better. God knows you better than you know yourself. 
better than I know myself. God knows you. And then you look in verses 7 down through verse 11, verse 12, and we see that God is with you. There's no place you can go that God's not already there. Used to be that uh, people said, you know, how could God be so big that he fills up the whole universe? Are you saying God's that big? No, actually what I'm saying is the universe is a little thing like this, and this is God. And the universe is inside of him. And so wherever you and I go, God is already there. Okay? And then you get down to verse 13, and you walk through verse 13 down through um, verse uh, 16, and uh, yeah, verse 16, and we see very clearly that not only does God know us and not only is God with us, but God made us. He fashioned us. He created us. And this is, you know, verses 13 to 16 are very powerful evidence for believing that life begins at conception, that inside the womb while the baby is being formed, God is intricately involved in that person. And even though it looks kind of unformed and we don't really understand what's going on and some would say it's just a blob but it's really not it's something that God is fashioning and forming kind of like when a a woman or a man is building something and you just see it in the initial stages say a piece of canvas or a piece of of linen and all of a sudden they take a needle and thread and they plunge it right into the middle of it and then they pull it through and you're saying why'd you stab it like that and then you begin watching them and they're embroidering and pretty soon they add other colors and you recognize that this is actually a beautiful piece of art as these threads are woven together. And that's the, the imagery that he's using here of God, this master craftsman, forming and shaping each of our lives. God has made us this way. And so as we read through these opening parts of this passage, we're seeing that God is pursuing you. God is pursuing me he pursues what's precious. He pursues what's valuable to him. And that's you. That's, you're what's precious to him. And he's pursuing you. Now, the thing that's interesting is you read verses 1 through 16. If you're somebody that's a, that's a Christian and you read that, it's very comforting and very soothing. Wow, God's, you know, he's looking after me. He's paying attention to me. He knows me. That's really special. Wow, that there's a God who pays attention to me like that. But if you're not yet a Christian and you're struggling with this idea of, of a God who would have a personal relationship with you, it can actually be terrifying. Kind of like instead of daddy who's caring for the little child, it's like the policeman with his radar gun and you're going down the way of life and he, he's clocking you to make sure that you're doing what's right. And that can be a very intimidating and frightening thing. Now David, as he is exploring this idea of God pursuing us, he wants us to understand that that's a good thing, that it's right for God to pursue us. This psalm is really a celebration of your loss of privacy. If you ever stop and think about it, it's a celebration of the loss of privacy because you really don't have any privacy because God sees and knows everything about you and about me because he's already there, and that's okay. Why don't we just walk through this and make sure that we really get what this is saying, and then we'll talk about what's our response to this. God pursues what's precious to him. You're that precious thing. 
So he says, Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path. And the word searching there is, is a description of, of like when you're harvesting a crop. Maybe it's wheat, maybe it's soybean or something like that. And your combine is going through the field and you're cutting the stalks and you're shaking the grain off the stalk. And then you're actually shaking the, the grains that have been collected and gathered. And there's this dust that forms. The outer shell begins to break off. That's called the chaff. And in ancient days, they would take piles of grain and they would take these large forks and they would throw the grain up into the air and the breeze would blow that dust off, that shell off, that, that chaff and the heavy grain, the solid part, would actually fall back down to the ground. That's called winnowing. And that's the word that he uses here. God, you've, you've taken me and you're shaking me. And you're, you're sifting me. And you're examining me. You're, you're taking me, another word there that talks about him searching and testing, it's like melting down a piece of metal to get rid of the impurities to refine it. God, you've been doing that to me and you know all about me now. You search out my path, my lying down. Every part of my life, you know about it. You and I think that we can get away from God. We go to another city. Maybe we're on convention. Maybe we're away from our family. Maybe it's a business trip. And we think that we can get away and nobody will know what we've done there. But God is already there and he already sees it. And he knows all about it. And he's sifting you and me to see really what's going on. It goes even further than just watching us and knowing us. In verse four it says, even before a word is on my tongue, you know it. And sometimes you and I are sitting there stammering and we've forgotten a word and we can't say it and God says, I know exactly the word you're looking for. <laughs> I know it's right on the tip of your tongue. That's because it's right on the tip of my mind. I already know it's there. I know what you're gonna say. I know what you're trying to say. I know even when you get tongue-tied, I know exactly what you're trying to get across. I already know that. I know all of this about you. And then David says in verse five, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Kind of sounds like a potter with his pottery wheel and a lump of clay and he dips his hand in the water and he begins as the wheel's spinning, he's taking his hands and he's squeezing the clay and he's forming a beautiful, a beautiful vase with it. Or maybe he's, he's sculpting it out of some other material and he's just using his hands, she's using her hands and she's forming this lovely piece of art. And David could be saying there, God, you're just shaping and forming my life. And he's going to talk about that in greater detail. You've, you've hemmed me in that way. But it almost sounds even more like I've been caught. <laughs> you've hemmed me. You've got me cornered. And, and you've laid your hand on me like a bail of hauling someone off in court to jail. Or a police arresting, arresting someone. The, the point is, however you try to imagine this, David says, I can't get away from you. You know me. Your hand is on me. Now, in David's life, God's hand was on him. But that has a double edge. Because I, I want God to bless me and protect me and provide for me. But sometimes God has to put his hand on me to discipline me and change my course. You see, if God's hand is on you, it does both things. David is saying here, you know me, and I need to be careful what I think and say and do because you know me. 
I can't escape from you. You see it all. You know it all. You examine me. You're the God that's the x-ray, the MRI, the PET scan that just examines my life and nothing, nothing, nothing escapes your attention. You see it all. You're examining me. And you know me. And the thing is, we want God to bless us and protect us and guide us, but that same God wants to correct us and protect us and guide us. And sometimes that involves him disciplining us as well. I think David is trying to get both ideas across there. You know me and you know what's best for me. The next stanza of the song, he asks a prayer. He kind of says in prayer and just exclaims, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The word presence there literally means, where can I flee from your face? Wherever I go, you're looking at me. Wherever I go, I'm right there in front of you. I can't hide you. You and I might think that we're like little children that are shy and we're embarrassed about meeting somebody and maybe we try to hide behind something. We can't. God is always in our face. He's always seeing us. And again, that's good because his eye is on you and he's watching you and concerned about you and caring for you, but he's watching you and he's seeing everything and he knows what's going on. He then says this, he says in verse eight, if I ascend to heaven, in the ancient Near East, that was where the gods lived. The Bible teaches that's where God lives. Our God, the creator God, the one true living God. He resides in heaven above, above the universe. If, if I could climb all the way up there to your presence in heaven, you're there. Guess what? I get there and I'm not by myself. You're there. If I descended and made my bed in Sheol in the place of the dead, the grave where the dead people await their judgment, if I could go down there into the netherworld, the underworld, And if I set up housekeeping there and I started residing there, even there, you're already there. If I could even go as far to the east, to the wings of the dawn, the beginning of the day, if I could go as far east as I possibly could, or if I would dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea and in the Israelite mindset, west, the farthest point west was the western edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And in the east, the dawn where the sun rose, that was the furthest place east. He says, if I could go in either direction as far as I possibly could, to the east or to the west, you're there already. You're below me, you're above me, you're beside me on either way. Wherever I am, you're with me and I can't get away. That's a good thing. Because you're never alone. But that's a terrifying thing. Because he's always watching and he's always there and he's always witnessing everything that's going on. He says, if I were to do this, even there in verse 10, your hand, wherever I am at, east or west, high or low, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I think David is acknowledging that he thinks this is a wonderful thing, a good thing. Because no matter how far away I am, no matter how high I go, how low I go, to the east or to the west, no matter what my location, you're there and you're there to lead me, you're there to hold me and protect me and provide for me and guide me. You're there and I can rest in your loving care and your direction. And I praise you for that.
What about this in verse 11? If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day for darkness is as light with you. If I could hide and turn all the lights out. If I went to the deepest, darkest place where there's no light whatsoever, you see me because the darkness is light to you. I can't hide. I can't hide because you're always there no matter where I'm at. And you may think, and I do this, I've done this too, well, I'm away from my family or I'm away from my friends or I'm away from my church, I can get away with something. This passage is saying, David says, you can't get away with anything because God sees it. He sees it because he's with you. He's already there. Imagine the furthest place you think is away. Imagine the place where God is not present and he's already there waiting for you. Again, that may terrify you, knowing that God is watching and weighing everything we do, say, and think. But it should also encourage you that you're not alone. That no matter how dangerous or how desperate that location is, He is there to help you and encourage you and guide you and lead you in doing His work and doing what He's called you to do. He's with you. God knows you. God is with you. But the song also says that God made you. Now, you may think that you're an accident. Maybe your parents told you you were an accident. Oops, we weren't planning on him or her. It was our little surprise. You were no accident to God. In fact, I read this recently. There's a, a, a scientist, an atheist, a physicist, and he's also called a cosmologist because he's thinking about the origins of the universe. Where did the universe come from? And this gentleman, Lawrence Krauss, is an atheistic physicist and co cosmologist, and he wrote a, a book that's called A Universe from Nothing. Again, this gentleman is an atheist, and so he's, he's absolutely convinced that the universe could come to be through nothing, that there are laws in physics, that the laws of physics, this is a quotation, the laws of physics allow the universe to begin from nothing. You don't need a deity. Zero total energy and quantum fluctuations can produce a universe, and there's a lot of scientists who would vehemently disagree with him. Although he also admits, I cannot prove that God doesn't exist, but I'd much rather live in a universe without one. He goes further. What's truly interesting about Mr. Krauss's worldview is that if his view of the universe is right, Krauss says, quote, human beings are just a bit of pollution. If you got rid of us, all the stars, all the galaxies, and all the planets, and all the aliens, and everybody, then the universe would be largely the same. We're completely irrelevant. Now maybe you think you're irrelevant. This passage says you're not. Don't worry about it. You're not. You're highly valuable to God because he's pursuing you and he pursues what's precious to him. Look what he says in verse 13, beginning there. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Again, the idea of an embroiderer or a weaver stitching this fabric together, putting it together, making it so beautiful. Imagine a beautiful 
tapestry hanging in an, an old castle or cathedral woven together by many people. This is God weaving your life and my life together. I praise you, he says in verse 14, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. There's a complexity in my design. There's a majesty about my being. And he's not being egotistical in saying that. He's not being arrogant and self-centered. He just says, when I stop and I think about how you formed me, how you made me, this body, how you created me, I'm in awe of you and I want to worship you and glorify you because I am fearfully made. It's just awe-inspiring. That's what that word means. I'm just awe-inspired when I look at the complexity of my my body, how you fashioned me. You've made me in such a wonderful way. I want to glorify you and give you praise. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows this very well. I have no doubt in my mind that I am valuable to you because you created me. He explains even further how this happened. My frame, talking about his skeletal structure, the bones, the the hard parts of our bodies, the bones, bone structure. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret and intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. What he's saying here is just simply this, is that you and I, when we look at a, a pregnant woman, Maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your daughter, maybe it's a, a, a friend. You look at her and you don't see the baby. And yes, you can go get an ultrasound or some other medical examination and, and they could show you a picture, a blurry picture of what that baby looks like. And yet God sees it in 3D living color. He knows exactly what's going on inside the womb. And he was there that day and those months before your birth, actually knitting and weaving and forming and putting it all together. Yes, he gave the DNA program <laughs> to get the process going and lead in the development, bringing some of the genes from your father and from your mother and putting it all together and making you, you. He did that. And even though it's a mystery to us as human beings, it's no mystery to God because he's witnessing it. He's an eyewitness of your conception of your development during your mother's pregnancy when she carried you. God was watching that. He saw that. And in his mind, there is no accident about your birth. You're not a speck of pollution. You're somebody that was made and formed in the image of God, created and loved by God, even if your parents don't love you, even if no one else accepts you, God, your creator, values you and treasures you. He was there guiding your development and bringing you into this world. And not only was he there in your development, but he goes on even further and he explains, in your book were written, every one of them, all the days formed for me, God has a plan for your life. And that's not just a a slogan from a bumper sticker at the Christian bookstore or a little booklet that explains how a person can become a Christian. But it's true, God has a plan for you. He has a book, a book of days, where it's written out what is going to be happening in your life, the events of your life. Do you have freedom of choice? Of course you do, certainly you do, but God knows what's going on. And God is ordaining and orchestrating the events of your life. You can be terrified of that. 
You can be frightened that, God, you know everything about me. There's nothing hidden. You know this wart. <laughs> you know my gray hairs. You know this. You know that. You know my struggles. You know how I, I, how I feel about myself. You know all. Yeah, God knows all that. And maybe that's a terrifying thing to you. Or maybe you're saying, I wish you'd change it and make me different. But that also might be a very comforting thing to you. Because God knows and loves you. And those aches and pains, and those warts and blemishes, and those anxieties and fears that you have about yourself and about your health, God is fully aware of all of that as well. And He loves you. You're precious to Him. He pursues what's precious because He made you. You see, that adds to His knowledge. <laughs> I, I put, you know part B and connected it with slot A and I put it all together and I put this here and I put that there and like you know a mechanic building an engine I built your life and I know all about it I know the little quirks I know the little hang-ups I know all these things you were never an accident you're not a speck of pollution you're valuable and precious to me because I made you. Now, if God is like this, if God truly is pursuing you and pursuing me, if he knows us, if he's with us, if he made us, then how do we respond? What should we do? How do you act to somebody like that? Again, you could be terrified and saying, I don't want somebody to know me like that. It scares me. But someone else might say, no, you know me like that. Here I am. I give myself to you. And that's what David does. In verse 17 and 18, look what he says. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. The thing that's interesting here in that opening sentence there in verse 17, the word precious there means something that's valuable because it's rare. Okay, so like a pearl or a diamond or a little nugget of gold or something like that. They're rare, and that's one of the reasons they're beautiful. They're rare, and that's why they're very valuable. But then he kind of flips it. It's almost like an oxymoron because he says, how precious to me are your thoughts. They're rare thoughts. They're beautiful thoughts. They're precious to me. And then he says, how vast is the sum of them? They're rare, but they're numerous. You get that? Yeah, some of you are chuckling because you... You get that. God has this, this love and affection for me. He values me. I'm precious to him. He's thinking of me. And, and David says, that's precious to me, that you would think about me like that. And yet you do it so often. You're, it's so numerous. And he says, it's like the sand on the seashore. And if you try to count all the grains of sand, God's thinking about you even more than the number you reach when you enumerate all of that and you count them all up and you'd spend all your days, one, two, three, 557 billion, 479 million. Okay, you get to that. God's already thought more of you, more often of you than those grains of sand at that point. Can you imagine that? That God would think about you like that? And it's not that he's thinking, well, <laughs> Scott blew it again. Put that one down. Oh, he did it again. One more. Not like that. Yes, he knows that. Of course, it's inescapable. 
But there he is. I made him. I gave him those gray hairs because I gave him five kids. And look at that. You know, he, he struggles with his waistline. That's okay. There's this. I know all about him. I see that. And he thinks about you and he thinks about me and he values you and treasures you. And David says, that's like a treasure to me. That you would be that mindful of me. My friend, you may think that nobody cares about you and nobody loves you and nobody's paying attention to you. But the truth is the creator of the universe loves you and treasures you and is pursuing you because you are valuable to him. You are priceless to him. And he thinks about you all the time. And you remember what it was like when you fell in love with somebody? Man, I can't get her out of my mind. I can't think of it. It's almost like an obsession. Well, I'm not trying to say that God is obsessive, but you're on his mind. And David says, it's more than the grains of the sand at the seashore. That's how much you think of me. That's how precious it is to me that he would care for you and love you and treasure you that way. When you realize that God knows you, that God is with you, that God created you, the first thing you do is you worship him. God, thank you for paying attention to me. Thank you for caring about me. Thank you for knowing about me. Thank you for loving me this way and valuing me this way. But then we get to these verses in verse 19 these verses that seem like they're out of place. And they really aren't. Because I think if you read verses 19 through 22 in the context, you understand that if God really loves you and values you, and if you really love and value God, then how do you react to evil? How do you react to the things that are anti-God and oppose him? Can you love them and honor them and value them as well? And the answer is no. In verse 19, David says, Oh, I wish that you would slay the wicked, O God. The wicked means faithless. The faithless people, the people that worship idols, the people that are apostatizing from the faith. They're denying the faith. They're rejecting you. I I wish that you would deal with them and get rid of them. And that's God's job, not my job. That's God's job to judge them, not me. I wish you would do that, God. He says, oh, you men of blood, you murderous men, literally. You people that go around killing others and are so violent for your own sake. I wish you would just depart from me. Get away from me. Have nothing to do with me. What David is saying very clearly here is, I want to be fully devoted to you, God. I want to be fully surrendered to you. And I don't want to hang around with the people that are anti-you. I don't want to hang around with the people that are against you and fighting against you and resisting you and your will. I want to resist that. Now, you're right away thinking, oh, hold it, hold it, hold it. I thought we were supposed to love our enemies. Yes, your enemies, not God's enemies. You're supposed to love your enemies, of course. And we're supposed to witness to people that don't know the Lord. Yes, of course, that's true. But we have to come to a place in our lives where we say, I am going to be so devoted to the Lord that even if people are encouraging me to do what is sinful, I have to say no. If they're trying to lead me astray, I have to say no. And I have to resist that. I can call them to love the Lord. I can call them to turn to the Lord. I can be a witness to them that way. But I can't ever let them be a witness to me to do what's evil. I have to take a stand against that. He goes further and he says this. 
They speak against you with malicious intent. They're, they're blaspheming God and dishonoring him. They take your name in vain. And that's not just you know, saying God damn or something like that or oh geez or something like that. It's bigger than that. It's, it's like saying God promised this, but really he didn't. And, and blaming something on God and, and saying, well, the, the Lord made me do this when really he had nothing to do with it. And you're causing him to be blamed in the process. It's dishonoring him by making a promise and then breaking it, saying, I swear I'm doing it this way, but you're really lying. Or I promise, I, you know, by God, I'm gonna do this. And then you don't do it. That's taking his name in vain and that's dishonoring him and we're called to be a testimony of his grace and power in our lives, to be a witness to his salvation with our lives and with our lips. But when we don't do that, we're gonna bring dishonor to his name. And he says, I don't wanna do that. He says in verse 21, do I not hate those that hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? And you say, ah, it's pretty strong, don't you think, David? What about Jesus? Did you ever read Luke chapter 14? Maybe around verse 26. If you don't hate your mother and father and sister and brother, if you don't hate them and love me with everything that you have, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Gulp. What? What David is recognizing here is that if there's a God who created you, who is with you, who knows you, he demands full devotion. It's only right that we surrender to him and hold nothing back. That there's no relationship more important to us than him. That he's more precious than our spouse, more precious than our kids, more precious than our country, more precious than our jobs or other possessions or other things or other people or our own pleasures. That he is more important than anything else. And David is saying, I'm willing to hate that other stuff so that I can get you and be devoted to you. Now, again, please, you balance that out with we're called to love our enemies and we're called to turn the other cheek and we're called to be a faithful witness and care about our families and friends and these other folks, of course. But where's your primary loyalty? Where's your first devotion? Whose fully devoted follower are you? And David said, I am fully devoted to you. There is nobody, there is nothing that's more important than you to me, O oh God. He finishes that part by even saying this, I hate them with complete hatred. Total hatred. I don't want any kind of wishy-washy thing here. I surrender to you, I count them my enemies. You know this about me, God. You know that I'm fully surrendered to you. This is hard for us to hear, but we often think, well, I wanna love God, but I still wanna love sin. 
I want to be devoted to God. I really care about him, but, but I still like to have fun with sin. And David is saying, no. I'm not going to give in to sin. I'm just going to be surrendered to you and you alone, O oh God. This is hard for us to grasp. But we've got to hang on to it. You really don't understand. I don't understand the first part, the first 16 verses even the first 18 verses of this psalm, unless I make verses 19 through 22 part of it and understand that if I know that God and God knows me, and if that God is with me and I am with him, and if that God has made, has made me and I surrender to him because he's made me, then what am I going to do with sin and evil? Then I've got to be squarely united to him and yield to him with all my heart and not let sin have any control or influence in my life. I've got to do that. And that's why the last two verses are so important, the verses that you and I read together. Because you see, the first part we're called in verses 17 and 18, we're called to love God, to adore Him because He loves us. We're precious to Him. He's precious to us. In verses 19 through 22, we're called to hate evil. If we truly fear God, we hate evil. But then in verses 23 and 24, lest we have an arrogant attitude that says, I'm superior to somebody else. I'm better than, the, better than them. No, David says, look, I'm anxious about my actions and attitudes. I just want to make sure that I am fully devoted to you. So search me. And you're right away thinking, wait a minute, he just said in verse 1 that God already is searching him. No, this time he was, in verse 1, he's stating a fact. God, you are searching me. And verse 23, he says, God, I want you, please. He's almost commanding God, come and search me. It's an imperative. I beg you, come search me. I beg you to turn over every rock, look behind every corner, flip the lights on every place in my life. I want you to search me. Search me, oh God, he says, and know my heart, my inward thoughts and feelings, my motives, my emotions, my attitudes, my anxieties. I want you to know everything that there is about me. You know everything on the outside, but now I want you to just probe the depths of my heart and my soul. I want you to look at me deeply that way. Search me, O oh God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And the word thought there is fascinating because it's, it's the idea of anxiety, not just thoughts, but like negative thoughts. Anxious thoughts, doubting thoughts, worry. I think David is saying, God, I'm anxious. I'm not sure. I think I'm fully devoted to you, but am I really? I think I'm really surrendered to you and you're Lord of my life, but, but am I really? I think I'm doing your will, but am I really? And the thing is, is that you and I, we can say, oh, you know, I look at my life, maybe you do an inventory at the end of the day or the beginning of the next day, you kind of do a moral inventory. You look, you know, did I do anything good? Did I hurt anybody? Did I offend God? You know, what am I grateful for? Were there any victories in my life? You just kind of are asking those questions and probing a little deeply and you're just looking at yourself that way. And you get down to that part, did I blow it? Did I hurt anybody? Well, nope, I can't think of anything today. I'm just gonna move right along. But if you take verses 23 and 24 and you just say, God, would you just look at me? And if I'm kidding myself, would you expose it? If I fooled myself, would you expose it? If God knows you, if God is with you, if God created you, 
then the only way that you can stand before the God who's already there and knows all that there is about you and was there when you were conceived and formed every part of you and has a plan for your life, the only thing you can do and stand before him is, God, I don't want anything to get in the way between you and me. Would you just examine me and make sure that there's nothing, nothing that's grievous. And that's what he's saying here. See if there's any grievous way in me. The word literally means a painful way. But it has this idea of something painful because it's related to an idol. And so he's saying, would you just look at me and see if there's any kind of an idolatrous way that leads to pain? Is there anything I'm worshiping, treasuring, valuing more than you? And help me get rid of it. Help me turn away from it. Help me fully surrender to you. I don't want any kind of way of pain, anything that grieves you or grieves me or hurts other people. I don't want to be doing that with my life. I'm asking you to search me and see if there's a way like that in me. But he doesn't just stop there because this is not just about, oh, look how terrible and sinful I am. That's not where it stops. It stops with the end of verse 24. Lead me in the way everlasting. Literally, lead me in the ancient way. Lead me on the path that leads to life, eternal life with you. Lead me on that ancient path. I don't want to go down my own way. I don't want to follow any of these other gods and goddesses, these idols that are part of my life, the things I trust in, the things I count on, the things that when they're taken away from me, they absolutely crush me. I don't want to rely on anything like that and live my life that way anymore. I want to live fully devoted to you, surrendered to you, because you are fully devoted to me and you are pursuing me and you know me. I want to know you like this. I want to be yielded to you like this. And I'm asking you to look at me and make sure that there's nothing, nothing, nothing that's blocking my fellowship with you. Please expose it and then lead me down that right path of trusting and obeying you. You see, Jesus said earlier, we read in verse Luke 14 that you know, Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to love me more than you love anybody else. You've got to be willing to even hate mom and dad and brother, brother and sister. And that's so hard for us to hear because we're such a family-oriented culture. But he's saying, I've got to be first in your life or you cannot be my disciple. That's what he said. The reason why this is so important is because when he says at the very end there, Lead me down that everlasting way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If God knows you, if God is with you, if God made you, then all we must do is surrender to his way, his ancient way, the way of everlasting life, That's Jesus. You trust in him and you follow him because he pursued you going to the cross. 
And he died for all those sins that are exposed. When, when, when you and I are examined by God and we, our lust, our fear, our greed, our anger, all that stuff is exposed by God as he looks at that. All our anxieties, our hangups, all the brokenness in our life. Jesus died for all that so that we could be forgiven and cleansed and brought into a right relationship with him. Don't be terrified that God knows you. Don't be terrified that God is with you. Don't be terrified that God made you. Don't be terrified that God is pursuing you. You are precious to him. Instead, surrender. Yield to him. Let him search you, but then let him lead you. Let Jesus lead you and guide you on the path to everlasting life. Let me pray with you. Lord, thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for your mercy to us today. And I just want to praise you for this opportunity to worship this morning and look at this psalm. It really speaks to our soul. It reminds us of of where we're at, that you know us and you made us and, and truly you're with us. Lord, I pray that because we're so precious to you, we would surrender to you and make you our most precious thing that we'd not let anything else stand in the way of us knowing you. I pray for your leading, for your direction. I pray that you would stir in our hearts that we would let you lead us down that ancient path to life, the path of your word, the path of trusting Christ. And we pray this in his name, amen.